Okay, welcome everyone to another chapter of Vital Conversations. Uh, it's Dr. Joel Kreisberg here with a, a, a wonderful guest, uh, Dr. Robert Keegan, and my colleague Reggie Mara, who is going to take the lead a little bit and introduce our guest and tell us what we're going to do today. Reggie? Yeah, great. Thanks, Joel. And, and Bob, thanks very much for your, your indulgence and patience uh, as we were getting this thing going. And welcome to all of you who uh, are joining us tonight on this call. Um, I know that some of you know who, who Bob is and some of you may not, uh, but just very, very uh, briefly and not to reduce um, over 30 years of wonderful work to a, a couple of bullet points, um, but, but Dr. Robert Keegan is the Meehan Professor of Adult Learning and Professional Development at the Harvard University Graduate School of Education. Um, I'm just happy to be, be able to be part of this call tonight because I've used his work um, for the last probably 15 years, both personally and professionally, um, both his work with the evolving self and um, in over our heads, and more recently, immunity to change. Um, I'm really happy that tonight, some of you have probably seen this already, but we're going to speak directly to um, this, this newest book, Right Weight, Right Mind, the ITC Approach to Permanent Weight Loss, where uh, Dr. Keegan, along with Drs. Lisa Leahy and Barbara Helsing, um, are applying the immunity to change uh, process uh, to weight loss. And um, there's, there's actually a trajectory to, to his work. And again, I'm, I'm reducing um, some decades of, of really valuable work uh, to a couple of bullet points that if I were going to sum it up in, in one or two words in terms of how it served me and some other folks that I know is, uh, is Bob, your work helps us to take what's invisible and hidden, make it visible so we can do things that are really practical, useful, and helpful with it. And again, I apologize for that reduction. Um, but, uh, yeah. yeah. So, so with, with that, um, what, I'd, what I'd love for you to do to begin um, and I want you to just take this and, and, and run with it as, as you see fit. But I'd love for you to say a little bit about the trajectory of the, the, your view of development as it moved from the evolving self through in over our heads, through how the way we talk and uh, change the way we work into immunity to change and the most recent book into weight loss, which probably came as a bit of a surprise, I'm guessing, that it went in that direction. So, so thank you for being here, and, and it's all yours. Okay, thank you. I appreciate that, uh, that nice introduction. And I'm uh, you know, humbled to hear that uh, you know, my work has been helpful to you. And I want to say hello to everybody in all the various time zones through all these interesting technology glitches. I met uh, uh, a nice person in Sydney who told me it's eight o'clock in the morning, her time, and that this is perfect for her. It's seven at night here in Boston, <laughs> but I just got off a plane uh, from London, so it's actually midnight in my body, so figure it all out. Anyway, this is the world that we live in, and uh, you asked me kind of, yeah, how, how do you have that uh, string of, of books? Actually, from my point of view, it's really all one thing. I mean, the I was originally... Uh, much more of an adult developmental theorist, uh, really, uh, you know, joining with others to, um, as it turns out, kind of create a new field. Because when I when I entered graduate school in the 1970s, if you if you were a developmental psychologist, it literally meant that you studied children, you studied infants, uh, uh, children, and adolescents, because that was the period of the lifespan in which we thought development occurred, and uh, just as we tend not to get any taller after our first 20-some years, we tended to feel that the psychological equipment uh, was all developed after the first 20-some years, too. And the, the so-called hard scientists were very certain of all this. And as my colleagues and I began to present our research at August conferences, uh, where for some reason I would always go first, suggesting that some of these transformations, these better understood transformations of childhood and adolescence, uh, we thought that we were seeing this uh, in some of our adult subjects. And then the brain scientists would, uh, would stand up after me and in the most uh, polite forms of uh, uh, derision <laughs> and contempt, they would basically say, well, it's a nice story that Dr. Keegan's trying to tell you here, but 
basically he's making inferences from interview material and we're, you know, we're studying the real thing and uh, the brain just doesn't do any qualitative development after the first 20 some years. And when I tell my students this, by the way, you know, these days they all find this a bit surprising because they're in their 20s and um, they just kind of, kind of take for granted that everyone now, including especially the neuroscientists, uh, talk about the phenomenal neuroplasticity of the brain and so on. And we all know today that a real qualitative development, such as we've understood in the first 20 years, can take place in the next 20 and the next 20 after that. So the original work I did was to help us flesh out the contours of psychological development in adulthood. And without going too much into that, uh, since it's not really the focus of the of the call tonight, or this morning, depending what time zone you're in. The basic architecture of development there has to do with the ability to, um, as you said, you know, uh, be able to look at things that before um, you were run by, uh, and to take uh, a perspective on the lenses through which you've been looking at the world. So instead of looking through them, you can actually look at them, correct them, and so on. Now, <clears throat> I'm still very interested in adult developmental theory, but for the last uh, 25 years or so, I've been more focused on the applications of, the, of this theory and the whole immunity to change approach, which I I'm guessing that many, many of you who have tuned into this are already familiar with, but I'm also going to assume that there are many of you who are not. So I'm going to take a, a few minutes to just maybe bring people into uh, what that perspective is about. So you can see how it is basically an approach that was developed by my longtime colleague, Lisa Leahy, uh, and I. Uh, to actually think about, given what we've learned about adult development, given that we've learned about this underlying mechanism where people, uh, when they develop, are able to kind of step back and kind of look at something that before they couldn't see, what would a deliberate practice um, look like if you were trying to actually support those developments intentionally, the basic educator's question? And that led us to the uh, what is now the, the immunity to change approach. Now, to get a little bit more practical, should I, um, you see you're talking to a professor here, so you notice you don't have to ask me more than one question and I can just talk, you know, for the next four hours. <laughs> no, that, that's great, and I, I'd love for you to get more practical because the, the one word that, I'm practical is probably a better word, but in the best meaning of it, um, that this research and all of your, your body of work is, in fact, eminently useful in the real world. And that's what I, I love most about it. So by all means, uh, let's get practical with it. Yeah. Okay. So what I'm going to try to do here uh, is see whether I can actually um, scribble a little bit here on my cool whiteboard and have you all see it since how, you know, how much longer do you really need to look at my handsome face, you know? So I'm going to try to create a visual here, but I think I need maybe your help in making that happen, Reggie. I don't know. Um, so in terms of the screen share? Yes. So that's just, that's actually, you can, you can actually do that um, with that little uh, green screen share down at the bottom of the middle of your. Of yeah, your that's screen. what. That's exactly what I'm looking for. Oh, there it is. Okay. Yep. You did something or something happened there and it appeared. I probably your cursor touched it, I think. There it is. It's, it's coming. Yep. We're good. Okay. So for those of you who are not familiar with immunity to change, this is a kind of uh, grid that we use to, as a sort of psychological x-ray, that is that helps you develop a picture of something that's normally out of sight. And I'm gonna give you a very quick, simple version, kind of, of uh, you know, uh, how it works. So uh, maybe even before we talk about weight loss, uh, let's just take a different kind of example. So in the first column, 
people write down some kind of improvement goal, right? So I know many of you are interested in health, so let me give you an example, a health example that, um, you know, from a real context in which we've been working, which has to do with uh, patients not following their doctor's orders and in particular not taking uh, their maintenance medications. So we have millions of people in the baby boom cohort and younger cohorts as well, <clears throat> who may be in even perfectly reasonable health, but who are prescribed medications that they should take, uh, you know, preventatively, uh, maybe even for the rest of their lives. And uh, when people are prescribed such medications, uh, they, and they're interviewed, they tend to have very high understandings of uh, why they've been prescribed, what they've been prescribed. Uh, and uh, when you ask them, so if I come back a year from now and check to see if you've faithfully taken this drug every year, every day as you're as prescribed, what do you think is the likelihood that you're going to tell me that you have? And they, they look at you like you have two heads and say, you know, the doctor told me I could have a stroke and die if I don't take this uh, drug. He told me there's no negative side effects. Uh, it's covered in my insurance. So duh, uh, I think the odds will be 100%. You know, why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't I turns out to be a really good question because when you go back a year later, you find that in different studies, 53 to 57% of the people are not taking the drug regularly as prescribed. Uh, to be fair, this doesn't mean that they've discontinued it uh, altogether, but they become, uh, they skip days, uh, they don't refill it promptly, and so on. So this is a big uh, health problem. And it's also a big commercial problem, a multi-billion dollar lost revenue problem for the pharmaceutical companies. It's one of those interesting and rare convergences of social benefit and commercial benefit. So we did studies of this. And uh, just to give you an example, the, you know, what is the current way that, uh, you know, people are trying to attack this problem? Uh, you know, a common thing is, for example, uh, you know, to send a, uh, automatic voicemail messages, you know, from your pharmacy telling you it's time to refill your drug, your, your, your prescription, stuff like that. None of this is working very well, and we're going to get into exactly, you know, why that might be the case. So we did a study with 97 people who were all prescribed two or more maintenance medications. They all wanted to be adherent. None of them were adherent. When asked why they weren't adherent, uh, their most, the most common answer was, I don't know. And, uh, you know, when bright people uh, give you the answers that children give you, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's usually a signal that there are forces at work around which uh, we are unaware, as you were saying in your introduction, things that we can't see. So let me just show you a little what, what ITC helps you kind of uncover. So here's a, a real guy from our study, 58-year-old guy. He was prescribed three maintenance medications, wasn't taking any of them. His improvement goal was the same as everybody in our study, which was, you know, to be adherent, you know, which is just a fancy medical term for, you know, follow the doctor's orders, take the drugs as prescribed. In the second column, we asked people to be really sort of brutally honest with themselves and with us and create a picture of what it looks like when they are not following their goal, doing and not doing instead. Uh, everything they do, everything they fail to do instead of their goal. So this guy says, you know, I don't take them regularly. He says, um, you know, he, um, doesn't refill them promptly when they, when they run out. When he gets those automatic voicemail messages from the pharmacy, he just hangs up in the middle of the message. Okay. Now, by the way, from a the point of view of a lot of improvement processes, this second step is considered a you know big uh, uh, corner turning kind of step. You know, the idea is if you can get people to honestly look at the ways in which they are acting contrary to their own goals, then uh, you know the narrative is that you know, people will take it from there. 
and if they really want to accomplish what's in the first goal and, they, and they're not you know, defensively uh, rejecting uh, all this evidence of their counter behavior, they'll, they'll, they'll change. But you, know, you and I know that that actually uh, isn't enough for them to change. Now, the next thing we do is ask people to do a kind of strange thing. We ask them to imagine doing the opposite of everything that's in their second column and to try to identify what are the forms of negative feelings that come up for them. So in this particular case, I asked the man, imagine you were taking the drug every single day as prescribed. What would be you know, your worst feeling about that? That's the opposite of his behavior. And he said to me, my worst feeling in all this is if I don't take the drug every single day, I could have a stroke and die. Now, if you're still with me, you would find that answer actually pretty non-responsive to my question, right? I asked him what his worst feeling would be if he did take them every single day. And he told me, just as if I were asking him an opposite question, my worst feeling is if I don't take them, I could have a stroke and die. Now, this is a good example of what the brain scientists would call neural pathways. I think he has a very well-trodden neural pathway with respect to not taking the drug. And he walks down that path probably a hundred times a day, in a, you know, a millisecond each time. Or if you could slow it down and listen to it in words, it would probably sound something like, I'm not taking the drug. That's so stupid. I should be taking it. I've got to take it. If I don't take it, I could have a stroke and die. I'm going to start taking it. I'm going to take it from now on. I'm going to take it. I have to take it because if I don't take it, I could have a stroke and die. Like that over and over again. I don't think he had any neural pathway for the question I asked him just a rainforest of neurons, not even a little dirt path. So I had to bring him to start a whole new path and I had to say to him, of course, sir, I understand your biggest worry if you don't take the drug is that you could have a stroke and die. But just stick with me because I'm actually asking you something a little bit different here. Imagine that you are taking the drug every single day as prescribed. If I have to take that damn drug every single day, he said, interrupting me, I would feel like an old sick man. I tell you, I would feel like somebody more in my father's generation, who's in a nursing home, by the way, who I'm not visiting. Whew. Okay, so a whole lot of stuff started to come out there. I said, whoa, you have a lot of strong feelings about that, sir. He said, well, you're damn right I do. He said, I'm 59 years old. I'm in the prime of my life. I'm not some half-dead guy on life supports who has to think about a damn drug every single day just to get through his day. Okay, now we're getting to, you know, some of his big worries, you know, the worry that he's somehow sick, that he's dependent, that he's old if he actually accepts the fact that he has to take this drug every day. And we go from these worries, we're basically intentionally triggering the amygdala there, what is the big alarm? What is the loss? And we say that, look, capable people don't just have worries. They spend energy so that the things that they are worried about will not occur. So what we're trying to get at in the third column is what we call the hidden commitments. The first column is a visible commitment, a commitment that you could say, so to speak, you have, you can name it, you can talk about it, you can hold it in your hand, you can look at it. But the interesting thing about human beings, this is the whole notion of what's subject and what's object, the underlying developmental theory in those earlier books, is that we don't just, you know, there are feelings and thoughts we have, there are feelings and thoughts that have us. That is to say, we're run by them, we're less aware of them. And the commitments are commitments not to die. That's why we call it the immunity to change. They're commitments not to suffer some big psychological loss. So in his case, uh, he may have a commitment, just to be simple, to not feel like an old, sick, dependent man. Once he sees that, yes, he really has this commitment here to be adherent, he really wants to take these drugs, 
But he also sees now that he has a commitment to not feel like an old, sick, dependent man, which is the way taking these drugs make him feel. He begins to see a system here, what these arrows are meant to suggest. And this system, he begins to see that these behaviors here in the second column, which are obstructive to his first column goal, are perfectly sensible, even brilliant and faithful expressions of his third column commitment. So that he doesn't feel like an old, sick, dependent man, he does everything he can to stay away from these drugs. As he said, it's a picture of me with one foot on the gas here. I really want to drive the car in the direction of being adherent, but now you're showing me I also have one foot on the brakes why I am not doing it. This system we call an immune system, taking this idea that just as the body has a, a biological immune system, so the mind might have a psychological immune system. And it shows him a, a little glimpse into his, this phenomenon we call the immunity to change. He sees now that he has a kind of dilemma, a dilemma is two lemmas. That's what a dilemma is. Two premises, two warring propositions that he can see running across these two columns. Now, this is to just quickly show you in general what the immunity to change is all about. It, it, what it does is, is introduce to us a a counter-narrative in thinking about improvement. And by the way, anybody who's getting restless and saying, wasn't this supposed to be about weight loss? Just hang on for two minutes because it's all going to become about weight loss in two minutes, okay? <laughs> so what is the counter-narrative here about improvement and change? So the dominant narrative, the theory that's running around in the backs of most of our heads we discovered about change is basically a model that we call the New Year's resolutions approach, the willpower approach, or we have been calling it for many years, the dieters approach, meaning that term pretty much at the time, metaphorically. In other words, willpower and New Year's resolutions and dieting, what they all have in common is that you try to affect change by going directly at these second column behaviors, which are hanging you up and you try to change them. And it's, it's, it's admirable to try to change that behavior directly. But if those behaviors are actually serving some very important purpose, like the one in the third column, purposes that we're usually not aware of, then no matter how hard we try to change these behaviors in the second column, it becomes very difficult to do so. You make a New Year's resolution and find you're unable to keep it, it's, it's probably because the behavior you're trying to change, you're only looking at as bad in some way. And actually, from some point of view in your mind, it's actually very good. His behaviors of not taking those drugs are very, quote unquote, good with respect to his third column goal. Now, for years, we used the metaphor of dieting because people relate to it so quickly. And what we were saying is all these approaches to change that are about altering the second column behavior, no matter what the goal is, it has nothing to do with food at all. I have the goal to be a better leader from behind and make the people around me good. But in the second column, I have to admit that, you know, I take over and I make myself the center of the tension and I take all the credit. And then if I think of not doing that, you know, then I start to think, oh, well, I'll be less relevant. I'll be less important. Okay, so I put myself on a diet, a diet of new leadership behavior, and try to effort myself into a stance of being more uh, supportive and generative and mentoring. But it doesn't work very well. Why? Because there are all these forces in the third column. So for years, we use the dieting metaphor just because people could easily understand it and to suggest that all approaches to improvement that just go directly at behavior 
are essentially like forms of a diet. You're trying to just power through, you put yourself on a new behavioral regimen and you just kind of hope for the best. And just like a diet, you can delude yourself into thinking initially you have a good plan. Because the tricky thing about a diet is that if you stay on it for a week or so, you don't lose all the weight you were hoping to lose, of course, but you begin to lose a little. And this team seems to confirm for you that you have a good mental model. You have a good plan. It encourages you to stay on that diet for another week and you lose a little more weight. And pretty soon your clothes start to feel less snug and you stay on it even longer and people start to tell you you're looking good. And all of this seems to confirm that you have a good plan. And it may even be enough uh, encouragement that it keeps you on the diet long enough to actually lose the weight. And this is true whether it's about a diet for food or a diet to change any other kind of behavior. You can bring about temporary change. The problem, of course, as we all know, is that with real diets, no matter what that diet is, it will work if you follow it and you will lose the weight as people do all over the world on diets. And a year later, they have regained all the weight. A recent study showed plus uh, 7%. The average dieter regains 107% of the weight that they take off in a diet. Now, why might that be? It, you know, it could be because they changed their behavior temporarily were able to do it for as long as their store of willpower held out, but they didn't change their minds. And so eventually, you know, the behavior, the old behavior is going to come back. Now, as you said in your introduction, uh, I've written several books uh, myself and with my colleagues. Most of those books, uh, you know, we intended to write, but you're absolutely right. This new book, which, by the way, uh, here's your 10-second uh, commercial plug, will be available on Amazon starting January 1st, just in time for people's New Year's resolutions. This new book uh, really kind of wrote itself because what happened is that people started writing to us and telling us that this, that this approach and especially this metaphor of dieting uh, was not just a metaphor that uh, they we would hear these stories over and over where people would be saying things like I've tried 10 different diets I've always lost the weight I'm good at losing weight I'm good at regaining weight I'm not good at keeping weight off and I tried your immunity to change approach and I lost 20 pounds I lost 40 pounds we'd hear all these great stories and I've kept them off, and I've kept them off for six months. I've kept them off for two years. And people started saying, you know, this is, it isn't just a metaphor. You can actually use this, you know, uh, not just to take weight off, but to keep the weight off. And we started seeing these maps, you know, that were just, you know, really, really fascinating. So, you know, to give you a couple quick examples, and then I will shut up and let you uh, move this in some further direction that you might like to, or open it up for questions and answers. Um, so, you know, I'll, I'll give you kind of a comic one and a kind of poignant one. Uh, both people telling us how we didn't understand how useful our own approach was for something that was so connected, you know, to the body and even to our biochemistry. So this guy told me how he'd lost the weight and kept it off. And it was only because of immunity to change. And I said, well, can you tell me exactly how you think this approach, you know, worked for you? And he looked at me and he said, I'm going to tell you, but you're not going to understand it. And I said, well, okay. Uh, why do you say that? And he said, uh, you're not going to understand it because I don't think you're Italian. And I said, well, I have to admit I'm not Italian, uh, but why don't you just give me a try? So he said, okay, I'll explain it to you, but you're not going to really get it. He said, I belong to a tribe of people I dearly love, and we engage in a weekly ritual, a multi-generational 
eating extravaganza. And he was talking, of course, about the Sunday, uh, the Sunday meal. And he said, you know, whenever, whenever I wanted to, you know, uh, lose weight, and I would say to my loving aunts on Sunday that, no, I really didn't want, uh, you know, another portion of pasta or whatever it was that they were offering me. You cannot believe, he said, the hurt in their faces and, the, and their pained expressions and their tones of voice, because I know you're not going to understand this, but they weren't really offering me just food. They're offering me love. And I turned down their love and they, they say the most awful things to me. Like what? So you're, you're not one of us anymore. You're too good for us. You know, you don't like the food. You know, my mother's saying, oh, you're giving your aunts agita, you know, cut this out and so on. So he said, look, I realized, you know, so he had an improvement goal here, lose weight. And, you know, in the second column, he's, you know, overeating, just being very simple. But if he's not overeating on Sundays, what's the big worry here? You know, that, you know, he's, he's hurting people he loves. And he's, you know, damaging very precious bonds. And he said, I learned what was in my third calm commitment was, you know, to, you know, not hurt, you know, my loving aunt's, you know, feelings. And of course, what the three columns do is they give you a picture of a system. How do we get out of the system? That's the fourth column, that we all have big assumptions that keep the whole thing in place. Like our friend who wouldn't take his medications had an assumption that a person who has to take a drug every day must be some kind of, you know, sick, uh, dependent uh, man. Uh, he had to go out and meet a bunch of people who were taking statin drugs every day and see that they were, you know, robust uh, people that he would perfectly identify with. What this guy came to was that he had an assumption there was no way to refuse his aunt's, you know, kind of inductions that he keep overeating without hurting their feelings. And once he got to that, you know, he was able to talk to them about it. I mean, the whole thing can seem comical to you, but uh, for him, it made a difference. Okay, I'll give you one other example, a more poignant one from a woman who had the same story about how she would regularly lose 20 pounds, feel really great. People told her how great she looked, and before long, she'd regained all the weight. And what she came down to when she had to think about, okay, what is in my worry box? if I, you know, uh, don't overeat and stay mindful about proper portions and keep exercising and so on. And what she came to, which I'm sure many of uh, those listening will immediately resonate to, maybe especially women, what she came to uh, without going too much into her story was that yes, every time she lost the weight, uh, she liked it and uh, she liked the fact that she was at a weight that she wanted to be at, but she found herself overwhelmed, uh, a mix of enraged and um, I think panicked by the way in which when she lost the weight, she became essentially a sexual object and men came onto her and treated her in ways that because of her own uh, personal history were tremendously upsetting. And she came to see that she, one of her hidden commitments was to protect herself from that by basically staying 20, 25 pounds overweight and kind of taking herself out of that kind of dynamic. And once she saw that that was what was going on, that, that her, her regaining the weight and staying overweight was actually serving, you know, this self-protective purpose, uh, she was then in a position to begin to really look at what are the assumptions she's making, what might she be able to do about this to become more conscious of it. 
So in the book, Right Weight, Right Mind, you'll find lots of these kinds of stories. Uh, you'll see lots of these people's maps. You'll hear because we then went and re-interviewed these people, you know, a year later to find out, did they keep the weight off and so on, that uh, in a sense, we wrote this book because people basically, you know, we didn't seek out research subjects. The research subjects, so to speak, sought out us. And in that way, the book feels like a book that was written least by us, so to speak, more, most for, you know, a, an audience of people who were kind of telling us their stories. So why don't I end there and give you a chance to sort of open things up and let people ask whatever questions they might want to about the framework in general or its particular application to weight loss or whatever might have been occurring to you while you were listening to me. Great. Yeah. Thanks very much for that, Bob. And, and I actually, I want to start off with one question. We are open, going to open up the, uh, the space now for folks, but I noticed in right weight, right mind, especially even more so than in the immunity change book, you're, you actually were very, very specific with people encouraging them not to try to change their behaviors um, before they really went through the entire process. And could you just speak briefly to why that is important? You actually did touch on it in the last 10 minutes. Could you just pinpoint that? Because I felt that was really, in one way, counterintuitive, but really important. Yeah. The, the, the dominant model for improvement that I was already describing essentially looks at and improvement as making almost linear and incremental advances on your goal. So a diet's a perfect example of that. You alter your behavior in order to, you know, accomplish the goal. You, you alter your eating, you reduce your calorie intake, maybe increase your exercise for the purpose of accomplishing your goal. It's very rational, very admirable in many ways, but it doesn't alter your mindset. Our whole approach to change is to not just see the system, but to identify those big assumptions that are keeping the system in place and to form a relationship to those assumptions rather than being basically uh, run by them, to kind of set up a relationship to them. So initially what we invite people to do is not rush too quickly into uh, you know, uh, new behaviors, which inevitably can get swept into behaviors that are on behalf of trying directly to lose weight. We tell them to just try to hang out with those assumptions, watch them, notice them. I assume I'm going to feel deprived if I, you know, eat less, if I eliminate the desserts or whatever, if I just have a forkful instead of the whole thing, you know, so I might just I might just observe the way that I'm feeling about that. Eventually, it does lead to taking new behaviors, but the behaviors are not on behalf of immediately getting better. They are behaviors on behalf of getting information. Information from the world as to whether my assumption is actually confirmed or disconfirmed. So I might initially just observe how I would feel. I think I'll feel deprived. So I keep eating the dessert. When I run the first experiment, I might, you know, only eat half the dessert and see, did it really feel so awful? Yes, actually for the first 10 minutes it did. But then after a while I realized, I, you know, I was perfectly full. I mean, there are, there are some practical things it's useful to learn, you know, with respect to dieting, like that the feeling of fullness or satiety is the fancy term for it, being satiated doesn't come immediately. It doesn't come for maybe 30, 45 minutes after you've eaten. So if you if you are waiting to have that feeling, you, you're not going to have it in five minutes. So you just keep eating and you keep eating and you keep eating. So uh, as you say, we're trying to kind of invite people into a different model for thinking about improvement that is really more about changing their mind, first of all, which is the mother of their behavior, than trying to change their behavior. That's why the book is called Right Weight, Right Mind. We want to bring the mind back into, you know, what weight loss is all about. Great. Thank you. So, so Joel, do you, do you have the, uh, the hands up uh, page there? Or can you, 
Give, in, give the instructions, Reggie, on, on the raising hands. Yeah, so for those of you who would like to ask a question, um, what you can do is basically go down to the bottom of your screen um, where it says participants. If you click on that, um, you can actually go in there and and there'll be instructions for raising your hand. It's a little, it actually says raise your hand. Press that button, your hand will go up. And um, Okay, got it. I think we got one already. So yeah. I am going to, Gwen, I'm going to open up your mic and your video. So be prepared because I'm going to have you open. Uh, let's see if I get you on. Gwen, are you, hold on. The whole world's about to see you, Gwen. Gwen? Yeah, I don't think you can see my video, but um, okay. hi, Bob. It's, it's nice to see you again. I took your immunity to, uh, to change course. One of the questions that I was wondering about is whether you've been able to track this, uh, or what time periods have you been able to track the change across in terms of weight loss, or is it still early in the process? Well, that's a great question, because you know, when people tell us, oh, it really worked great. I lost all this weight. And they'll say, how long ago did you lose it? And they say, oh, just like two months ago. Well, you know, we're very happy they lost the weight. But that, that can happen on a diet. You really want to know a year and two months, two years and two months, have they kept the weight off? So the answer to your question is neither that we have done large-scale systematic, you know, studies of this, nor is it, you know, just entirely – reports of recent weight loss. Once we decided to write the book and kind of essentially do do what people were asking us to do, which is kind of, you know, tell their stories, then we started, um, you know, interviewing people and sending out the word and asking, you know, people to who had used the approach and so on to kind of be in touch. And so what you actually have in the book is a number of of cases, you know, not 200 cases, but you know, a number of cases where uh, we did re-interview people, uh, you know, a year, sometimes two years later uh, to check to see that they, you know, had kept the weight off. And in most cases, most people had put a little weight back, but nothing like the normal curve of regaining everything plus 7%. Thanks, Bob. Thanks, Gwen. We're going to put Deb Thompson on next. Uh, start with video and unmute. And Deb, can we hear you? Hello. Hi. Um, I'm a psychologist, and I'm also someone who lost about 85 pounds 10 years ago. Um, so I'm kind of a, a double, double person yes. here. Yes. So, and I love your work. Um, I'm wondering about if the idea of include and transcend is in this work, such as the woman who wants to protect herself against um, sexual attention. Yeah. And rather than necessarily her testing that assumption and disproving it, since she probably won't, how can she include that need to protect herself with different capacities, like saying, screw off, leave me alone. Exactly. That she couldn't do when she was 15 or right. 20. Exactly. And that's, that's exactly what happened. I mean, in other words, her assumption was, um, if I get myself to a weight that I really like, I am now defenseless, you know, okay. in, a, in a patriarchal uh, and objectifying kind of world in terms of men's relationship to women. And I am as helpless as I may have felt when I was 14, you know, okay. and all of that stuff is becoming more conscious. And often when you make your assumptions uh, explicit, there's a part of you already that says, wait a minute, this does not ring true. I'm, I'm acting as if I am still that 14 year old person. Is that really true? Do I not have more resources? Do I not have ways to, a fight or flee or yeah, tell someone to screw off or back off from these kinds of situations. And, you know, can I not, you know, find ways of coping with this? And, you know, in a sense, and this happens in many cases, just the articulation of the assumption already began to put her in a situation where she was transcending 
you know, this way that she had been caught up in this before. She had helped her have greater awareness. Yeah. I find one big hidden commitment is to um, um, avoid the judgment, avoid the judgment of family, the world, that you're ugly and gross because you're fat. And so I'm going to stay fat to say F off to the judgments. And then I try to work with people to keep that rebellious spirit that the body image judgment and shame is wrong, but they don't have to prove that through staying heavy and unhealthy, but they could still have an attitude or a spirit of don't judge me. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, the book, you know, and, and actually, you know, jumping in, doing a lot of these interviews with people and so on was absolutely fascinating for us because some of it was things we'd heard about in other contexts, you know, working with people with other kinds of improvement goals, but others of it, you felt like you were just entering a whole new world. Like I I did not, you know, uh, grow up in a family where kind of overeating was a way that the family stayed together. So, I mean, my family had its other shares of neuroses that, (laughs) that it passed on to its young, Uh, but that was not one of them. And, you know, it was not something I was at all familiar with. And, 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 and it, was, it was striking to me how many, in how many cases, you know, if a family member were going to start changing the way that they ate, it risked the nature of their connections kind of within that family. Or I remember another guy who, uh, when, when he started, he, both he and his wife were overweight. And when he started to lose weight, it was very threatening to his wife. So, it, it, you know, as you say, that there are all these different dynamics, including, you know, these ones that, that are more aggressive, like the ones that you're talking about, where there's a kind, you become kind of attached to your overweight. It gives you a bigness, a kind of, you know, strength or whatever that you are not even kind of realizing you're feeling that you're needing. So it's a, you know, it's a very uh, interesting world with lots of rooms and chambers in it. Now, I have a question for you. Okay. Sure. So you took off a lot of weight and you didn't put the weight back on. That's what you're saying, right? Yeah. So from our, and and I'm sure you did it without the immunity to change approach because it was, it was quite a while ago, right? So our, I don't know if you can answer this, but our theory would be that if you took off this weight and kept the weight off, there must be some way in which you changed your mind, not just your behavior. Mm -hmm. And uh, you don't need to kind of share with us the particulars of this, but does that ring true to you? Do you have a sense of oh, a- absolutely. I would say in a nutshell, I tried to lose weight for about 20 years to be virtuous and to be beautiful. Mm-hmm. And part of me resented and rebelled against both of those assumptions as being um, your job in life. Bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> if I can say that. But when I shifted to health, and vitality and wellness, um, I had a ground to stand on that had validity for me. Yeah. And that was a massive mind change. Yeah. And turning 40, people in my family dying in their 50s of uh, heart, heart attacks. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I shifted paradigms and I stopped rebelling. Now when people were thrilled to death that I lost weight, and I'm such a good person now, it pissed me off, but yeah. you know, <laughs> I could watch that as an object yes. and I could watch my reaction as an object. Yeah, but that wasn't any longer why you were doing it and you weren't hooked on that kind of approval or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, thanks, Deb. And you know, we have time, I think, for one more question. And I know Robert uh, DeMarie or DeMarie, um, we're going to unmute you if we can. And uh, you have a question for, for Bob? Yes, I do. Yes. Um, and it has to do with, um, so I've taken the, the course back in March with you, Bob, and, yep. and been involved for a long time. Good to see your eyes. That's about all we can see. <laughs> <laughs> Here, let me, let me there you go. Here. Hold on. There you go. That's more of you. Very yeah. good. Handsome as handsome can be. Um, Very good. So my question is around having done this process uh, with myself is, is identifying the, my big assumption around an improvement goal is, is that what I've 
really been noticing over time is is that um, it doesn't happen all at once in the sense yeah. of seeing the big assumption and saying, so for me, my big assumption is, is if I show up, um, I'll be found inadequate, I'll be rejected, I'll be found uh, just uh, unworthy. Yeah. It's a real, a real, real danger in my big assumption about showing up in the world. And as I, as I've been testing that, and this is over time, you know, a year or so, yeah. is that it really is an unpeeling of an onion and that I see that it's not something that's, um, that, that just happens. Oh, I have the awareness. Oh, this is the big assumptions wrong. I can move, I can just really make this huge radical change. So that it really is something that's more of an unfolding rather than just something, uh, turning up a page, if you will. And, I, and I'm wondering how, how you, what you think about that. I think that that's, that's very true. I think the pace of these things, like, you know, so many other things are variable. I think maybe, you know, for you to be framing the question that way, I would take as a little bit of a signal to me or to us that maybe we have, uh, you know, not uh, adequately represented the differing pace of change that can take place for different people that if you were, I don't know, somehow we led you to believe it was going to be faster than it was, or that there was this all at once quality to it. And maybe that's something we need to be more careful about. So I appreciate that. I think that there are instances where um, people in surfacing the assumptions, just as I was saying uh, earlier to, I think it was Deb, um, that the assumption, once you surface them, there's some part of you that already feels like I'm no longer completely in the grip of that assumption. And so something mm -hmm. rather fast does occur, but many times we're working on assumptions where we really feel like the world uh, is going to have to do a lot of work with us to show us that that assumption is false because it feels to us very true. Mm -hmm. And I think mm -hmm. often, you know, that the change uh, trajectory and pace would be slower then. But um, what I also take in your words, besides a kind of uh, instruction for me, is, if I'm not uh, mishearing you, that although it's slow and it's like peeling an onion, you must be stepping into spaces where you are letting yourself show up more mm -hmm. and finding that you are not excluded or unwelcome or unreceived. Is that right? Oh, definitely, yes, for sure. Yeah. yeah. And, and an increased um, uh, uh, feeling of energy about my life, uh, optimism, greater possibility. Yeah. And, and I, yet, yet I still run into this big assumption. Sure. <laughs> it still shows up. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's what, you know, we do tell people that, you know, they should run a first assumption that it's just a, a small assumption where you maybe would let yourself show up you know, in some space where rationally, you know, people love and respect you. And it's very unlikely, you know, that you are going to confirm mm -hmm. that assumption, but then you have to push out into a little bigger space and a little bigger one. And so, yes, the, the worry will keep coming up, but each time, you know, as you face it down, you know, the world has something to show you. And then, and then there will even be situations maybe where, you know, you fall on your face and it doesn't seem like things went well. And then you can ask yourself, is this because of something that is fundamentally flawed in me that I am unworthy? Or is this just because there's something more I need to learn here? You know, and uh, exactly. I can do yeah. it better the next time. And, you know, that this yeah, is I had that experience just a couple of weeks ago where yeah. I think a year ago that the, it would have been devastating for me. Yeah. Whereas when it, when I had the experience was, Oh yeah. Yeah, I really need to learn this. I really need to learn how to do this. Yeah. I got feedback that was very cutting and sharp about, yeah, you really need to know how to do this and you don't. So yeah. learn, it, yeah. learn it quickly, yeah. Yeah, and so then it shifts about whether I am fundamentally unworthy or whether I just didn't do a very good job there and I can get better <laughs> at it and I can learn from it, you know, which is a exactly. whole relationship to it. Yeah, and a lot of that is, you know, related to, you know, this distinction between a fixed mindset and a growth mindset, you know, and is it my unworthiness just fixed? Or even if in some cases I'm not up to par, is that something that it can actually change? Mm -hmm. 
Good to see you again, Robert. And I like your painting there in the background. Oh, thank you. Yeah, my sister did that. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Robert. Yeah, thanks for that question. So we're just past the top of the hour. Um, and out of respect for our, our time commitments here, but Bob, are you up for, for two more questions or, you, or is this, are, you, are you satiated um, to use that word? Well, how about, since it's now about one in the morning in my body, how about right. if we take one more, if you really have so many hands sticking up there? Okay, so we'll, we'll take one more question. I'd be, the, the name that's up here, um, it says Rohan Squirchuk. <laughs> Oh, not bad, not bad. Okay. Um, so hold on, just starting my video. There you go. So, um, hi. Um, You're in Sydney, Australia. I am, I am. And it's not 33 degrees Celsius today as it was yesterday. So I'm happy about that. Yeah, um, it's summertime. Yeah, exactly. My question really is around the challenges in identifying the um, hidden, <laughs> hidden assumptions and how you go about working out. And it is that peeling of the onion that I think that the last guy talked about. Um, and, um, but I mean, I just kind of sit there going, God, I don't know what, well, I've, I've kind of got an idea about wondering where the next meal, meal, meal was coming from when I was a kid. And so the overeating is associated with that. Yeah. As I say to people, I've lost, you know, 150 pounds, but they've all found me again. So, you know, it's just a, it, how, how do you work that out? Or is there a process for peeling the onion? Well, first of all, a little, a slightly, I think, uh, unhelpful aspect of the onion metaphor is that when you have it fully peeled, you know, there's nothing there, right? It's not like there's some magic uh, kernel of truth that you capture in the, in the center of the onion. Uh, we, we don't, we find that it's not necessarily uh, required that we get to the absolute depth, you know, of the cause of everything. Okay. Um, uh, th that's a pursuit that can be, you know, interesting on lots of counts and can be liberating, you know, in, in, in various ways and is maybe more the work of certain kinds of uh, psychotherapy and so on. But we're, you know, we're very careful to say that the immunity change approach is not therapy, that you don't have to be a therapist to facilitate. I meant that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And really, you only need to get as far as you need to, to find that you have a new relationship to that behavior. So if those, that second column behavior begins to change because your mind shifts, then you've accomplished that goal. Now, you know, there may be some next goal that now arises and, you know, that may require you to, to go somewhat deeper, but I don't think you have to plague yourself with the doubts like, do I have the, the full picture? Uh, if, if you get a hold of an assumption that you, I assume that there's a certain way in which I never know where the next meal is coming from, or I assume that there's a certain deep kind of safety and satisfaction that I associate with the eating and the having of the food. And I assume then that if I actually limit that intake, I'm going to now feel you know, I'm not going to have that great sense of safety. I'm not going to have those positive, those positive associations and so on. Just being able to test those assumptions, if you find that they no longer have such a, a hold on you, will usually be enough to take your foot a bit off the brake, to go back to that initial metaphor, and enable you to alter the behavior. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you very much. That's yeah. very useful. Yeah. Lovely to see you again. Nice to see you and enjoy enjoy your day there. It's already a Thursday where you are, I guess. Mm-hmm. Halfway through. Yeah. <laughs>
And and uh, and Bob, it's already a Thursday within you already as well, I think. Right. So just to bring this to a, a close on behalf of uh, Joel Kreisberg and all of us at Teleosis Institute, we'd like to thank you, Bob, for your for your generosity, your your expertise, for your graciousness in, in, in this call. Um, uh, just as a reminder to everybody who's on the call as well, the book, uh, Right Weight, Right Mind, will be available um, on Amazon, as, as Bob shared with us, uh, in January or later this month. They promised us on the first day of January that it will be available. Okay, and I, again, I, had, I was lucky enough to get a, a preliminary copy, so I feel blessed with that. I highly recommend it. For those of you who want to look into more of, of Dr. Keegan's work, you can also find it at mindsatwork.com. Right. Um, I'd also like to say hello to David Zeitler, who's on the call, who made this call possible. Um, so, so thank you, David, if you're, David. If you're out there. <laughs> and um, for all of you who uh, hung out with us, hi. Um, we're, we're just, hey, David. Hey. Um, yeah, we're just really grateful for all of you hanging in there at the beginning when we changed the platform. So, Joel, any final words? Uh, well, I just, again, thank you for being here, Dr. Keegan, and everyone for joining us. Uh, we will be doing this again in January uh, with, a, with a slightly different topic, but about, about food again. Helene Waldman wrote a book called The Whole Food Guide to Breast Cancer Survivors, and she will be here. i got to make sure I get the right date on January 13th, talking about the transition from cancer patient to cancer survivor. Uh, so food can be used as medicine as well. So, and once again, I thank everyone for joining us and uh, look forward to you having a healthy holiday season. <laughs> exactly. And, and, I, and I, I appreciate uh, the chance to be with you all. And I, I understand the reason we had to switch the link was because so many of you uh, you know, dialed in, and uh, that's a real privilege. So great to have had the chance, you know, to connect with so many of you and to reconnect, I know, with a lot of you. And I, too, wish you a happy new year. Thank you. Thank you. I think we're going to close from there. Okay. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye.